Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Barris Sage Institute colleague, Ed Klass. On today's show, folks, we're going to be talking about abolishing intellectual property with Stefan Kinsella. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Yeah, such a light topic for a Friday, Ron. It's going to be... You know, I, I remember hearing one think tank walk, uh, wonk say, if you want to blow up a think tank, just walk into the cafeteria and say, we should get rid of IP <laughs> and, and watch, watch the fireworks. So Stefan Kinsella is a libertarian writer and registered patent attorney in Houston. He has spoken, lectured, and published widely on various areas of libertarian legal theory and on legal topics such as intellectual property law and international laws. Publications include the forthcoming Law in a Libertarian World and Against Intellectual Property, which will be the focus of today's show. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Stefan Kinsella. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is a great honor to be able to talk to you. I, I heard you first on Tom Wood's show, um, episode 2145 for Greg, so you can get that in the show notes. And then, of course, I've read your book, Against Intellectual Property, and you, and then you sent over some papers that you had done. Absolutely great, great topic, multi-layered. So really looking forward to diving in with you. But before we get there, what got you into the law? What made you want to become a lawyer? Well, I was an engineer and I loved math and technology and science. And I loved electrical engineering, which I studied in. Um, but I also started getting into Ayn Rand and philosophy and that stuff in college. And uh and, uh, you know, I just decided to go to law school after engineering uh, because I like to argue <laughs> and I thought I could make more money at it. And I've enjoyed law school. I enjoyed law and uh, the legal profession because it sort of opened I, – I was able to combine my technical um, and um, my analytical skills and also my, my, my desire to uh, go into – um, you know, the more um, normative type of arguments. So I enjoyed law and uh, a lot. Uh, and I was as a patent attorney, I was able to combine my technical um, uh, knowledge with with uh, with legal practice. So it's it's been a good choice for me. Excellent. Did you ever work in one of the big law firms or did you kind of go? Yeah, out yeah. I, st I started uh, right out of law school at a big law firm in Houston. Then I moved to Philadelphia for a few years and worked at a, a big law firm there, became partner in the intellectual property department. Um, and then I joined uh, about 10 years later, uh, 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 I joined a, a high-tech laser company as general counsel. So I was general counsel for about 10 years. Um Doing specializing in, in optoelectronics and photonics and laser patents, which was very intellectually challenging and stimulating and interesting. Um, and then for the last, say, 10 or so years, I've been a solo practitioner, and that now I'm pretty much retired. So I did I did big law firm, then I did in-house general counsel, and then I did uh, solo practice, and now I'm pretty much retired. You did the whole journey. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was it was it was good, and and the whole time I combined, you know, I would write on the law as a lawyer, 
to develop clients and to be part of the legal profession. But I also uh, wrote scholarly articles in libertarian political theory, legal theory areas. So Stefan, let's set the table. This is such a multi-layered topic. It's like peeling an onion. <laughs> and I think it's safe to say most people believe in property rights. But what are property rights? Let's, let's start there. Is it really just as simple as how we determine who owns things? In a way, it is, and that's the right question to ask, and it is multi-layered, um, and intellectual property is what I'm sort of known for in most fields. And it does sound like a boring or a weird or an arcane topic that makes people's eyes glaze over, although I've been asked to speak on this about 200, 300, 400 times, I so bet, I bet. There's, some, there's some interest in it. Um, and it's not my main interest. I mean, I just happen to know about it because I'm a patent attorney and I wrote about it to sort it out and people keep asking me about it. That's why I keep talking about it. But my main interest has always been libertarian legal theory, property rights. But this ties into it, which I've realized over the years. My article that you mentioned, which became a monograph in, against intellectual property, I think I published it in 2000 in the beginning. Um, but in the meantime, so it, it's, it, it causes so much controversy. Um, people are so upset by the idea of taking away their intellectual property rights that I've gotten so much criticism and pushback. So I've had to come up with alternative arguments to come up with uh, responses to arguments that I didn't have in my, in my original thing. So that's why I sent you the, these other links. Um, so property rights are basically simply a practical solution that we humans come up with to deal with the problem of scarcity. Scarcity means that we live in a world of scarce resources or what, what Mises or the Austrians would call means of action, things that we employ to accomplish things, right? to interfere with the world, to get things done. Um, these means of action are scarce, which means rivalrous or, as I call it now, conflictable, which means that there can be conflict over them. So like um, only I can use my body <laughs> or, 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 or my, my master if I'm a slave, right? So someone – only one person can decide who can – who ha what happens to my body, and the same thing with external resources like land or, or food or, or, or um, things that we, we use to get things done. Um, these things can't be used by m many people because that would prevent you from using it the way you want to use it. Um, so in a world where people are more or less civilized and they would prefer to have peace, cooperation, and trade, and everyone has settled um, the ability to count on their – the use of these resources for long-term planning right, and for, for production um, – we come up with rules that say, okay, listen, when there's a dispute over a resource, we have to have um, an answer to that question, who owns it, who has the right to use it. And that's what property rights are. So that so, – and, and by the way, every society has property rights. So even socialist and communist societies have property rights because in those systems, there's always an answer to the question for this given resource, whether it's a car or a house or a factory or a piece of land or, or you know animals – there's always an answer to the question who owns it. Um, the only, the only uh, difference between libertarianism and other theories is that we're very consistent, and we basically say the owner is the person who first used it or homesteaded it or got it by contract from a previous owner. Or in the case of your body, it's, it's just you. Like So that's, that's our basic property rights principles. So everyone believes in property rights. It's just that property rights in, in any non-libertarian system is – 
okay, you own your own stuff unless the government says someone else owns it. So like it can take your money, part of your money for taxes, or they can like take your home and redistribute it, you know. Um, but there's always an answer to the question. So uh, property rights is always the issue. And so when it comes to patent and copyrights, which are the two uh, most important and well-known types of intellectual property. The question is, are these laws legitimate? So lots of people say, um, are they prop are ideas property? That's not the question. That's not the right question because it's not whether something is property. The question is, is it the type of thing that can be owned? And if so, who's the owner in a legitimate just property rights system? Yeah, it, this is one of the points you make that I just find so fascinating that you say intellectual property isn't created. Creation is a form of wealth. It's not a source of ownership. This is one of the big mistakes, and it took me a while to figure this out. And I think once you figure it out, you realize where the mistake came from and why most people believe in intellectual property. And it helps to sort out property rights theory. But John Locke was sort of the father of modern Western private property rights and he was trying to argue against uh, the monarchical system where the excuse me the king claimed to be like you know the representative of God and owned everything, um, and um, uh, and he was responding to Filmer and these other guys. And so he he was trying to say, listen, everyone has a natural right to their own bodies and to um, to natural resources in the world that they homestead, which were previously unowned. So his argument was like. God gave the you know the world to humans. He gave everyone ownership in their own body, so their self ownership, and everything in the world is unowned initially, but given to hum humanity and in, in sort of commons. But everyone can go out and find something that no one else is using, and they can homestead it or what we call original appropriation. So, and that is I actually be, I agree with all that. But the problem is the way he argued it was this metaphorical thing. He said that. Um, God gives you ownership of your body, and therefore you own your labor, and therefore you own unowned things in the world that you mix your labor with because uh, if you don't own those things, then you would lose the ownership to your labor. But you see this metaphor about owning your labor and envisioning it sort of like a substance that you, that you own is sort of – and by the way, if you take that step out of his argument, the argument still works because if you mix your labor with something, it still gives you a connection to the thing, which gives you a priority claim over other people. But you don't have to say you own your labor. In fact, labor is just a subset of action like the other subset would be leisure. Like, like action is just what you do with your body. So you own your body, but you don't own what you do with it. That's like double counting, and it's a confusion. But once you believe that you own your labor… And then you start thinking of this sort of Protestant work ethic mentality where in a, in, a, in a roughly free market capitalist society, if you work hard, labor hard, then you, you usually reap the rewards of that because you can make a profit. You, know, you can succeed in the world. So people start thinking that, that you have a right to profit from your labor. right? Like in, in physics, we say that um, work is moving a force through a distance. If you push on a wall, you might sweat, but you're not moving it, so you're not actually doing work. And analogously, <laughs> in in political theory, um, you know, if you spend a lot of effort and resources on a business or an entrepreneurial idea, but it fails, you don't deserve a profit, right? You know, there's no right to get a profit. But this sort of idea crept in because of this idea that we own our labor, and so this led to this mistaken idea that creation is a source of ownership because people start thinking, well, if I'm a 
they they say that well the reason i own resources in the world scarce resources is because i create them somehow i guess mix my labor or i bring them into the world somehow <clears throat> and analogously if i create a useful idea i also own that but the mistake is in thinking that you own these scarce resources in the world because of creation so here's the here's the here's the thing i've had to emphasize <clears throat> creation which means uh, the using your intellect and knowledge and ideas and your effort and your labor to reshape things in the world that you have ownership of to make them more valuable. It is a source of wealth, but wealth just means that the things that you own are more valuable to you or potentially to your customers if you want to sell them. Right. So wealth is just the subjective appraisal of things that you own, but you don't have a property right in wealth because you don't have a property right in the way th people subjectively think about things. right? Um, but you do have a property right in things that you ap appropriate that are unowned or that you get by contract, but you notice those things have nothing to do with creation. So if I make a horseshoe out of, out of raw iron, I own the horseshoe not because I created it, because, but, but because I own the raw iron that went into it, and I had to get that either by finding it in, in the earth original appropriation or by buying it from someone who 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 owned it by contract. So creation is never a source of ownership. But once you think it is, then you can say, well, if I create an idea and it's useful, I should own that too. Once you realize that 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 the only sources of ownership are original appropriation and contract, then you realize that creation is never a source of ownership in the first place. Yeah, it, you know that Lockean idea. I put my blood, sweat, and tears into this land, and correct. Like, you know, like you say, labor's in action. It's not ownable. It's occupancy that determines ownership, right? Not not labor. Yeah, not only that. So, like in the original copyright uh, law before the Feist FEIST decision uh, made some changes, um, there was this idea. It's called the sweat of the brow doctrine. It's like so you have a copyright in something if. Their sweat of the brow, which means you've labored on it, you put your effort into it. But of course, that's quasi-Marxian, right? It's the idea that if you labor on something, you deserve a return. You don't. You know, the, yeah, the like free you market say. is you have the right to profit, but you have the you ha you have to face the uh, the option or the possibility of failure too, right? And the government shouldn't bail you out, right? We shouldn't do what we're doing with the banking industry now. We shouldn't um, privatize the gains and socialize the losses, right? Uh, it should be a free market, and you should be free to fail and free to gain. But that means that there is no right to earn a return from your labor. Okay. It's always uh, a risk that you take, and it's up to you to make it work. Right. I, you, you call it the labor theory of property rights. I just love that. That's wonderful. Well, Stefan, this is great. Unfortunately, we're up against our first break. And folks, we'd like to remind you, if you want to contact me or Ed, send us an email to asktsoe at verisage.com. Do check out our Patreon show where you can become a member. That's at patreon.com slash TSOE. And now a word from our sponsors. Follow Voice America at facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. 
For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. We don't follow, we lead. Join us, the Voice America Influencers Channel. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And we are back on The Soul of Enterprise. Our guest is Stefan Kinsella, but he has stepped away for a second, might be indisposed. So, Ron, let's talk a little bit before uh, he comes back. You know, one of the, the stories that he tells in the book. Oh, here he's coming oh, back here now. He is. Um, it, 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 one of the stories that he tells in the book. Sorry, Stefan, we're back on the air. Oh, sorry. Uh, I'm here. Yep. Okay, no worries. So I, I have to I have to ask you, my 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 uh, my co-host's work is ar- around uh, moving people away from the billable hour and the timesheet. <laughs> and right. that's where, where, where he, he meant. So let me ask you this question. When you're in b- big law, did you bill by the hour? And if so, how did you feel about your labor <laughs> being set, subjected to an hourly rate? <laughs> well, so yeah, I did that for, let's say, 10 years. And I actually hated the billable hour. But yeah, we, we billed every tenth of an hour every six minutes. Um, uh-huh. And it, it, one, one of my law firms, it was in Philadelphia. It was called Schneider. Harrison Siegel and Lewis SHSL, and we called every tenth of an hour a shizzle. It's <laughs> like I just built seventeen shizzles on that or whatever. Um, uh, that's one reason I went in house is I hated billing hours. Um, but no, so but 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 again, so this is where getting a clarity on the IP idea leads to uh, clarity on other issues like property and contract. So um, in contracts, so. Uh, most people think of a contract the conventional way, which is the the, the legal system views contracts as um, you make a promise, and then the government, if you f- satisfy certain formalities, like there's consideration or whatever, and you have you're not you're not uh, you're not um, defrauded, and you're over the age of majority, and you have capacity and all that, um, it's if you make a promise, then there it will result in binding obligations which the government will enforce in their legal system and if you don't fulfill the obligation then you're considered to be in breach and then if you're in breach someone can sue you for damages right which is usually a payment of money so in the end contracts simply mean a complicated set of conditions which specify when money gets transferred that's all so mm-hmm. um the title transfer theory of contract of Rothbard and Williamson Evers which I've written about as well um, reformulates all this and says it's not binding promises. It's just simply title transfers because property rights means the, the own, people own resources, but to own a resource means the right to exclude. That's what it really means. So if I own a car, all that means is I can – or a gun or whatever or a knife. I can prevent people from using it without my permission, but I can also grant my permission. I can let you use my car or I can prevent you from using my car. 
by my communication of my intent or my consent. So contracts are all about communication of the owner about whether they will or will not permit other people to use your resources. And that can be temporary or permanent or conditional or unconditional, right? So I can give you my car forever as a gift or sell it, or I can loan it to you for a day or something like that. Sorry, my poodles are barking. <laughs> That's all right. So, so, so the question then for, for, would be then when, and this is right in alignment with with Ron's work. When you are being at an at working for one of these big law firms, and they're paying you right. and charging you by right. the hour, right? But that's not what they're paying. Not, they're not paying for your hours. They're paying for the result of the hours, aren't they? <laughs> right. So, so that's what I was going to get. So, so in, in a typical contract, people think of economic exchange, which is two people possess or own a resource and they trade it with each other and then they trade the titles. But not all contracts are are bilateral in that way where there's two title transfers. Sometimes there's only one title transfer. So if I perform a service for you um, and you pay me money, there's there's only one title transfer. The problem is we confuse economic and legal language. So economically, we call that an exchange because it explains the behavior of the actors. So the reason I perform this service or this action is to get you to give me money, and the reason you gave me money was to induce me to perform an action that you wanted. That's economically. Legally, there's only one title transfer. That's the money right? because that's the only thing that's owned because you don't really own your labor. Um, so it's if you want to get someone to perform a service for you like a lawyer billing hours or whatever, all you have to do is set up a contract that says, I hereby give you $300 an hour for this, for this proposed um, 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 service. If you do it right, so it's like it's, it's, there's an if there. It's, it's almost like software code. Like, a, 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 and so if I perform the action, then I trigger that condition, and the money transfers to me. The ownership of the money transfers to me. So there's no conceptual problem with that. But the problem again is people conflate the economic and the legal realms, and they'll say they'll say something like, um, "Well, uh, if 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 you get paid for a service or an action, then." That I'm selling that, and if I'm selling it, I must have owned it, which means you own your services or you own your labor. But the problem is that's true in the economic realm, right? Like you can ex describe the exchange, but again, legally, you're not really selling your services because you don't own your services. It's just that you have the ability to control your body, and the the buyer of your services knows this, so he knows that you can refuse to perform the action he wants you to perform unless he induces you to do it by giving you. Uh, some monetary payment. Okay, so let's let's take it through. You talked a little bit about with, with Ron with copyrights, and then there are the other th really three forms of of IP that you talk about are patents, trade secrets, and trademarks. Talk a little bit about uh, the idea of, of patents and why that's really an absurdity, and and maybe the the idea of a well. I know that's one of the the way the the examples you use in the book. Uh, you know, someone digging a well, having the idea to dig a well, or the or the log cabin, maybe the uh, the the Galt Magnin story that right. might be, be right, better. right, <laughs> right. So so yeah, so the four the four classical types of intellectual property or patent and copyright, uh, which are in the U.S. are authorized in the Constitution or federal laws, and then there's trademark, which did evolve on the on the on the on the common law, and trade secret, which evolved on the common law. Um, they're not a as much of a big deal as the other two. Copyright basically. Um, 
originated in, in the state practice of censorship, controlling which book which books could be printed, and this resulted in the statute of Anne of 1709 and our modern copyright law. So copyright law uh, originated in censorship and, re and today results in censorship, as you can see by takedown notices of websites when um, – you know. Uh, when when copyright holders use the federal government to take down websites uh, hosting content that they don't want them to host, so it's it's actually uh, a violation of the First Amendment and freedom of the press. But the Supreme Court looks the other way on that. Patents originated in the practice of monarchs granting um, monopoly privileges to court cronies in exchange for favors like collecting taxes. So they would give someone. The exclusive right to do something in a given region, like the only one to sell playing cards or sheepskin or something like that, in a, what's called a letter patent. Uh, and in the in the statute of monopolies of 1623 in England, um, this practice was reined in by Parliament, but the king or the the government was was uh, given the retain the power to grant monopolies like this for inventions, and this led to the patent system. So basically um, a patent is uh, a grant by the government to someone who claims to be an inventor of a useful invention, which is usually an apparatus or what we call a machine, a device, or a process, a way of doing something that's a useful thing, which is original and new and um, non-obvious and all this kind of stuff. That patent lawyers have to deal with. So they give you a piece of paper. It's called a patent. It usually lasts for 20 years from the date of uh, application, and since it takes about two or three years to to get it issued, the remaining term is usually 18 to 17 years, something like that. So it's about a 17-year monopoly grant that gives you the exclusive right to make this process or this um, or this apparatus. And of course, this leads to um, uh, monopoly prices. That's the whole purpose of it. The whole purpose is um, to allow you to uh, be the exclusive provider of this for 17 years so that you you have no competition, um, and so you can charge monopoly prices. And that allows you th theoretically to re to uh, to make enough profit to recoup your costs of art research and development of making the thing in the first place. So that's the theory of patents. Um, but of course, <laughs> there's no evidence that patents induce innovation whatsoever. Uh, as far as we can tell, it only distorts things and impedes innovation because you have people, you have companies know that they can't make something like I, I don't know, a safety, a new safety device for a car, maybe a better way of making a seatbelt or anti-lock brakes, and they can't do it because another company has a patent on it so it actually like literally kills people or with with pharmaceuticals sometimes you'll have one manufacturer of a life-saving drug because they got the patent um, and no one else can make it and then and then if there's a shortage because there's only one supplier people like literally die like with with this uh, phazime or uh, 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 genzyme I think it's called I don't know I, think I blog posts on this I mean like people actually die because of this stuff. Um, so it's not surprising if if someone has a, mon a government protected monopoly right that they're, they're free from competition, they're going to have lower supply and charge higher prices and have lower quality. 
That was the, the whole story of the EpiPen, right? It, it was that, that had more to do with that. The, 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 the actual cost of the medication for the EpiPen a couple of years ago is insignificant. It was just the fact that they had granted the exclusive license to this one company that this guy bought. I, th- I think what happens here, it's very, it's, a, it's very complicated because these laws are arcane. So there's, there's this weird combination of the FDA system and the patent mm-hmm. system. Um, usually they go together, and so there's sort of like a twinned monopoly there. So the patent grants a monopoly, but the, the way the FDA system works to approve a new generic uh, sort of grants like a secondary type of patent monopoly. I believe in the EpiPen case, the patent had expired, but it was it was the remnant monopoly from the FDA system. The so FDA. the FDA system and the patent system sort of go together to – um, make pharmaceutical costs really high. It's, it's, it's just amazing to me when you have these leftist Democrat senators like Bernie Sanders, and they're, they're complaining about high drug costs, and their solution is to have a price control. But it's like the reason that the cost is high is because the federal government grants a monopoly patent or FDA protection, which allows the manufacturer to charge above market prices. And their solution is to have price controls. It's like it's it's totally schizophrenic. Why don't they just say we should get rid of the patent system, <laughs> or, or 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 break the patent monopoly on these? Uh, on by the way, the federal side. government has the right to issue what's called a compulsory license because these these privileges that they grant are not a property right. So the federal government has the right to issue a compulsory license, which is like, listen, if you're not making enough of this product. Because the we grant you this license in the first place, we're going to grant it to other people, and you, you get paid a reasonable royalty or something, but you can't stop them from competing with you. Um, they threat they threaten to do this in 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 the in the um, in, in the uh, in the COVID case in the vaccine case, and they threatened to do it about 15 years ago, and when there was this anthrax scare, and there was this medicine called Cipro, which is in short supply because it was only one one supplier because of the patent system, and the government said, listen, if you don't start ramping up your production, we're going to just issue a compulsory license. And of course, all the moronic libertarian, like the objectivists say, oh, this is a taking of private property. It's like, no, it's just the government granted you a monopoly and they're just going to sl- slightly take back some of the monopoly privilege they granted you. That's not a taking of private property, guys. <laughs> no, your argument is, is subtle. I, I really recommend the book to people who want to get a better understanding of this fascinating topic. But unfortunately, Stefan, we're up against our break. I want to remind you that you can get a hold of Ron or me by sending an email to ask. TSOE at Verisage.com. The website is The Soul of Enterprise, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows. We do have a Patreon channel available, patreon.com slash TSOE, where you can listen to the show commercial-free as well as our bonus episodes. That Patreon channel is sponsored by 90 Minds. If you need a mind, find one at 90minds.com. Right now, a word from our sponsors. Voice America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. 
Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercials plus bonus content. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE, subscribe now, and be free. You're worth it. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise well welcome back everybody we're talking with stefan kinsella about abolishing intellectual property and stefan you did a great job explaining one of the defenses for IP rights, which is the natural rights, you know, product of the mind and all and sweat labor and all of that. Let's deal with the second one. Because I, I found this pretty, you were pretty stark on this, the utilitarian argument about right. this is to maximize wealth. And you you have a different take on this. Well, so uh, what I mean, really, what happened was, uh, you had these systems in Europe, Right uh, before the U.S. was founded, um, copyright, which came from again the government and the church's uh, desire to control thought and speech and press and the press, and patents, which was just the remnant of mercantilism and protectionism and government-granted monopolies, uh, which were both formalized in the Statute of Anne and the Statute of Monopolies, and then. The founders of the U.S. used to this English system put in the Constitution the right of the Congress to enact protections for inventors and authors, right, copyright and patent, uh, which they immediately did. Now, at the time, uh, they didn't really think of it as a natural right or even a property right. It was, they were they thought of it as a temporary privilege. That's why they only lasted for a certain number of years, fourteen or twenty-eight years in the beginning. Um, and uh, they didn't have any utilitarian or empirical studies. You know, econ- econometrics had not arisen yet, so it wasn't like they said, "Oh, let's have a committee and we- we've decided that uh, uh, this new fledgling uh, central state of the United States of America, uh, we really need to make sure that we have an optimal amount of invention and, and authorship. So we need to have these things." 
they had no studies. So it was what I call a hunch. Like they thought, okay, maybe it'll be useful. It's, it's a policy tool. Let's try it. Um, they used to do it in England. We, we might as well keep this going. Plus, by the way, most of us founders who are drafting the constitution, we're the smart, the smart white guys in society. We're the inventors, like Benjamin Franklin. We're the authors like Thomas Jefferson. So yeah, it might be a good idea to have patent copyright to protect our stuff, right? Um, <laughs> so the point is, there was no there was no utilitarian basis. It was just sort of like a, a remnant of what had gone before. Um, in the 1800s, a lot of free market economists started emerging. There was more international trade, and they started saying they started objecting to this this practice because they realized it was contrary to the free market and property rights, copyright and patent, especially patent. But by that time, there had been entrenched industries um, dependent upon these things: the publishing industries, map industries. Um, Various industrial uh, sectors that were dependent upon patents, like airplanes later on, things like that. The thresher, I don't know. Um, and so they started defending. They started defending this attack on their privilege grants from the government in the name of free market economics by saying, "Well, it's not a privilege; it's a property right." And everyone says, "Well, what kind of property right is it that expires in 17, 14, 28 years?" They said, "Well, it's a special type of property right. It, it's things that you create from your intellect, so it's intellectual property." Yeah. So that's how that term happened, right? Now, in the nineteen hundred in the in the nineteen hundreds, the twentieth century, um, people started, you know, economics came into its own, and people started studying this question more more seriously. And in the nineteen fifties, Congress commissioned Fritz Macklup, a kind of quasi Austrian guy, to do a massive study of this. And in nineteen fifty eight, I think he he did this study for Congress, and he concluded that look, there is just simply no evidence that shows that the patent system um, is worth having. Like it doesn't do anything. Like it's it's that the Proponents pretend it does, uh, and in the meantime, there's been any number of studies, and they they pretty much all conclude that look, we just can't know, or it looks like it impedes and distorts technology and prosperity. The few studies that are trotted out in favor of of patents being uh, a stimulant to innovation, or they're pretty much all dishonest. Like the Commerce Department had to study about, and the Commerce Department uh, runs the copyright office, so like they have an interest in trying to promote <laughs> what they do, which is copyright. And 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 they said something like, "Oh, IP law is good because IP intensive industries contribute like four trillion dollars to the economy." Well, all that means is that like uh, say one third of the American economy, the businesses. Do things that are covered by copyright and patent, but that doesn't show that patent and copyright um, or the source of their contribution to the economy. I mean, you could say that 100% of the economy is covered by the tax system, right? right? <laughs> or, or 100% of the economy contributes to the funding of wars and interventions and the tariff system and and the public education system in the country. So therefore, uh, you know, there's a 100% Public education intensive industries in the country. It, it's, it's like a, it's a, non so all these arguments are disingenuous and nonsense. Um, my, my view is just from experiencing the system from the inside, from thinking about it, from economic reasoning, from political theory reasoning, from legal reasoning, and from empirical evidence and anecdotes. It just seems clear to me that the patent system is a huge drag on innovation. It prevents people from, so if someone has a patent on, um, a new product, which is which is uh, which is popular, 
number one, their incentive to keep innovating is reduced because they can just rest on their laurels for 17 years because they have no competition. And by the same token, their competitors have no incentive to improve on this um, during the duration of the patent because they can't – if they if let, let's say someone has a new iPhone and I come up with an iPhone Plus, well, it's probably still going to infringe the original iPhone patents, so I won't be able to sell it. So if I can't sell it, why invest the R&D to improve on the original iPhone? You see what I mean? So the patent system clearly – it's about 17 years, which is about one human generation, so – I think it's like a, a one generation drag on human um, uh, innovation, and because of that, uh, the reason that we're richer now is because – not because we have more resources on the earth. The earth is the same as it was 3,000 years ago. It's because we have more technological knowledge, so the human race has accumulated technological knowledge over the centuries and over the generations, and that allows us to be richer because we can exploit the resources more efficiently using better causal laws and better machines and better processes and apparatuses and things like that. So if you if you slow down the the, the addition to that corpus of knowledge, that fund of experience, which Hyatt calls, um, you're you're basically killing people because you're slowing down the development of the efficient use of resources and human wealth and prosperity. Um, so I think you know we live in a world which is far poorer than it would have been. If we hadn't had patent law for the last two hundred years, I, you know, I I find this so compelling and so empirically proven because when you look at industries that don't use copyrights and patents, like fashion and perfumes, and I'm sure you could prattle off a whole bunch of more. Th those sectors seem to be thriving with innovation. Fashion seems to be doing pretty good. Well, and a good example is 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 a uh, is is uh, movies, music, television, which are covered by copyright, but because of the internet and because of the widespread ability to use encryption and torrenting and all this, I mean, there's widespread piracy in the world. Everyone knows this, right? So if you make a movie or a song, I mean, no one sells CDs anymore. No one even sells songs anymore because they're streaming, right? So, you know, if you're if you're an artist. Or a, a movie producer, um, you know that as soon as you put something out there, it's going to be copied by in a pirated way. But despite the fact that there's widespread copying, um, the amount of arts, painting, graphic designs, movies, music that's produced is greater than ever. It's it's obviously not a hindrance to what's produced. You know, you also pointed out that Switzerland and Italy dominated pharmaceuticals for 50 years without a patent system. Correct. Yeah, that's I, true. Italy, Italy and Switzerland are some of the biggest – they still are actually. But uh, yeah, in, in the, in the mid-1900s, uh, their patent systems for pharmaceuticals uh, went away uh, or were never instantiated until late in the 1900s. Okay. Um, and they were, yeah, among the biggest uh, producers of pharmaceuticals in the world. Um, you know, we have this weird thing in the U.S. where so our pharmaceutical industry is is huge, and it suffers all these costs because of the FDA system and because of regulations and minimum wage and tariffs and all this kind of stuff. Um, but you know, once they develop a drug, they can make say a, a certain pill for like you know eight dollars a bottle, but they sell it for a thousand because they have a patent monopoly or the FDA monopoly. But when they go to Canada or other countries. These countries are quasi-socialist, so they have price controls. So Canada says, no, we're only going to pay $100 for this instead of 1000 And the pharmaceutical companies say, okay, 
because they're sell- <laughs> they're making it for ten dollars. They could still make a ninety dollar profit, so they sell it to Canada. And then, then of course, you have uh, arbit- arbitra- arbitrage, right? Set in, and people say, "Hey, why don't I go to Canada buy a buy a a crate load of uh, pills for a hundred dollars because of the price controls and bring it home here, and I could sell it for one hundred fifty dollars when the the price here is a thousand. So you have arbitrage setting in, and then you had these free market economists at the Cato Institute like Mickey Krauss and Doug Bandau and Richard Epstein who were allegedly free market and, and, and free trade, but because they're pro-patents, they don't want free trade to be used in this way to undermine the ability of US pharma companies to charge a monopoly price here. So they oppose free trade. It's crazy. So you know, this is when the rubber hits the road. If you if you're supposed to be a libertarian, if you have a choice to make between free trade and patent rights, and you choose patent rights, uh, you know, you woke up on the wrong side of the bed. bed. Yeah, I've heard Rich, Richard Epstein on this issue, and I, yeah, not not persuasive at all in my mind. But Stefan, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on. Ed's gonna take you the west of the way home but uh, i just want to say what an honor it's been to be able to chat with you about this i've long been fascinated by this topic and folks I'd like to remind you if you want to contact me or ed send us an email to ask tsoe at verisage.com and now a word from our sponsor and ed's employer sage voice america is on linkedin connect with us today Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is, for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And the book is Against Intellectual Property. Its author is Stefan Kinsella, and he is with us today on The Soul of Enterprise. And, and Stefan, I want to ask you about something that I thought was a really great example you seem to have um, a really interesting take on trademarks. Trademarks are th- th- that it, they are not protected by the company so much as ha- how they might harm the consumer. So talk a little bit about that. Right. So this is so uh, there's lots of confusing or dishonest arguments about IP. So one is, for example, um, oh, if you're against copyright, then you don't think people should get credit for what they wrote. Well, attribution has nothing to do with copyright. That's just a, a common practice. I mean, we know that Newton 
Newton came up with his law of gravity and Einstein came up with E equals m squared, not because of patent or it's not because of IP law, it's just because of, of the tradition of giving people credit or attribution. Uh, if you watch a movie, it says, oh, who produced the movie or who was the cinematographer? They might not have any IP in it. It's just it's just a practice. So there's arguments people come up with that are that are like just confused. Um, the other one is uh, if you're against copyright, you're for plagiarism. But plagiarism is um, simply an academic or or or, or university practice of, of not giving attribution credit. You know, representing someone's work as your own. Again, it's got nothing to do with copyright um, or something like that. Now, trademark. Most people think that if you're against trademark, you think you should be able to rip off consumers by fooling them. Uh, but the problem is this assumes that trademark is basically a type of fraud law, like it stops people from being defrauded. But the the thing about that is we already have fraud law, and we have contract law. So why do you need trademark? Like what does it add to it? So if you think of some examples of how trademark works, trademark is really closer to a defamation law or libel or slander law, or which is a reputation right because it says that if you – um, work again the labor idea. If you work to develop a reputation that has value in the market, again the labor theory of value or the Marxian value idea, then you have a property right in it. Again, it's this idea that you have a property right in value or or the right to a return from your labor, your hard work. So if I develop a reputation or a brand name like McDonald's or something like that, or Louis Vuitton or Chanel bags, whatever. But if you think about most of the examples, let's suppose I sell a fake Chanel purse for twenty dollars. Out of the back of a van on the streets of New York, and someone buys this purse or a fake Rolex for twenty dollars. You know the typical example. Um, there is no fraud there because the seller, uh, the buyer, is fully aware that it's a fake. I mean, they know they're getting a twenty dollar Rolex. It's not a real Rolex. So who's the defrauded victim here? There's no fraud. Um, and the other problem is. When there is fraud, like so, let's say there's a McDonald's hamburger chain with 500 locations. Now, if I wanted to compete with them, I would probably start a new one called Burger King, right? I wouldn't name it McDonald's because it's just going to eventually be found out and my customers are going to be upset, or I might get sued for contract breach or for defrauding them. But let's suppose I open a fake McDonald's in Russia, in Moscow. Okay, it's McDonald's because they don't they don't respect trademark law there. Whatever. Um, uh, under trademark law, the way it works is, if I have a fake McDonald's chain, or if I sell a fake Chanel bag, or a fake Rolex, if there's a victim, it's the victim of fraud. Someone I'm confusing, like my customers, but. That's already covered again, as I said, by contract law and by fraud law. But trademark law says that the holder of the trademark can sue me. So if I'm selling a fake Rolex or a fake McDonald's hamburger, the McDonald's chain can sue me, even though this fake McDonald's restaurant is defrauding their customers. They're not defrauding McDonald's because McDonald's has no property right in these customers' business. Like they don't own these customers. Right, but trademark law gives this right to sue to them. That's one problem with trademark law. It gives the right to sue to the wrong party. It gives the right to sue to the trademark holder, and that's because it's really based upon reputation rights. It's like McDonald's has a property right in the value of their name because they worked to build it up and because it has a value on the market because consumers subjectively appreciate it. So it's all this kind of Lockean, Marxian value, labor theory stuff mixed together in this confusing morass. 
Um, and then not only that, in the US about, I don't know, 20 years ago, the trademark law – so trademark law says um, that um, the holder of a trademark has a right to sue if there's a likelihood of consumer confusion. Now, first of all, they don't have to prove there is consumer confusion, only a likelihood. And second of all, consumer confusion is not the same thing as fraud. It's only confusion. right? It doesn't mean someone was actually defrauded. If I sell a Chanel purse that's fake, there is – the consumer is actually not confused, but there's a likelihood of it because some idiot could see it. I don't know. Like, so it's like it's distant from the fraud standard. But then there's this thing called the Anti-Dilution Act, which was passed, which says that uh, even if there's no likelihood of consumer confusion, like nothing to do with fraud whatsoever, if you sell something that could tarnish the mark of someone else or dilute its value… Then again, it's a trademark infringement, which again makes it more look more and more like defamation law, which is a reputation right. So trademark law is definitely not as harmful as patent and copyright law, but again, it's it's totally uh, illegitimate and should be abolished as well. In my All opinion. right, we've got about two minutes left, and this is perhaps an unfair question to throw at you with two minutes to go. Um, I, I work in the software industry. I work for Sage, and as you know, as over the time, software went from you know being on floppy disks that people were pirating and copying, similar to the way they did media now, to where you have software that's available in the cloud, and you only have access to it if you have a username and password. Would you consider that to be more along the lines of trade secrets then because i have yeah. housing my code somewhere in a cloud is that how that would work yeah i think it's closer to trade secret and by the way i would i oppose trade secret law as well there's nothing wrong with having a trade secret it just means keeping information private um the problem with trade secret law and again it's not near as bad as patent or copyright or even trademark but trade secret law basically says that um as long as you're making a, a reasonable diligent effort to keep some useful knowledge some knowledge that's useful to you to keep it secret, right? Even if it's not patentable or copyrightable, as long as you have proprietary knowledge that gives you a commercial advantage by having it uh, kept secret. If you make a diligent effort to keep it secret, then if it starts to leak, like say an employee leaves and they're going to give some of it to a competitor or someone else, uh, unless it's made public and it's available to the world before it's made public. You can go to court and you can get a, a, an injunction to stop it from being leaked, right? Uh, which I think again is wrong because y you don't have a right to stop third parties from doing something. Only, only you, maybe you're a previous employee, but anyway. So trade secret, yeah. So I think that basically, um, uh, I would even look at it as not just trade secret, but but it's just a way of uh, it's a way of uh, monetizing your services by giving restricted access to some things something it's like freeware right some things mm -hmm. parts of it are free and if you want the upgraded part you have to pay for it mm -hmm. and because the the producer of the service like customer support or maintenance or updates uh, things like that um, because they have the ability not to do it, they can withhold that service unless you agree to pay them for it. Right. There's nothing wrong with that, and I think that's how the software industry has evolved because uh, uh, what do you call it? The uh, the open source software has become a major part of software, <laughs> so they're not really relying on copyright AI and all that stuff now too. So, hey, right. Stefan, sorry to interrupt, but we do have to, to, to uh, wrap things up here. We're up against the, the top of the hour. I want to thank you so much for leading us through this complex but fascinating topic of intellectual property. Really appreciate it. Ron, what do we got coming up next week? Next week, Ed, we have Hector Garcia, who I know just created a new app, so I'm going to ask him if he copyrighted it or patented <laughs> it. So. 
All right. Well, see you in 167 hours, Ron. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, Business, and the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by Sage, building experiences that connect, remove friction, and deliver insights. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at noon. In the meantime, check us out at thesoulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes of our interview today with Stefan and where you can find his writings. And also, you can contact Ed or myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend. Sustainable success is just around the corner. If you are an entrepreneur, business leader, or anybody looking for their next level of success, tune into Sustainable Success with host Chris Salem. Did you know that the path to success is a long path that started many years ago? The path you started on then determines what is happening now. Chris and his amazing guests in their field will help you navigate the path to sustainable success every Thursday at 12 noon Eastern Time and 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Influencers Channel. An inspirational speaker and an Amazon number one best-selling author, Carol Edmonston has shared her interactive workshops with both children and adults. Whether it's in a school, hospital, or professional business